Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Joel, and I'm here with social researcher and author Rebecca Huntley to talk about her book, How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference. Thanks so much for joining us, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. This is one of those books, I think, that sort of does what it says on the tin. So (laughs) I feel like I don't have to explain what this book is about. (laughs) Or have you explained? That's that, Joel. Why do you say that? So, you know, when I was um, when I had the proposal and was going around to a lot of the publishers, there was, and this was well before the fires that we had in the last Christmas gone, there was a lot of feeling that that people said that they were concerned about climate change but didn't really want to read about it. Unless you're really hardcore, you know, Greta Thunberg lover, most people wouldn't want to read it because they would think there'd be a lot of science or they'd be really depressed. And so we kept trying to think about, Um, titles that really were positive but also really said what people were going to get from it so in the end I just said well why don't we just say what we're trying why don't we just call the book what it's trying to do and it's a very long title which means that there's no pretty pictures on the cover but um yeah what you see is what you get which is which both the book and and a good description of me, I've got to say, as a human being too. <laughs> well, it also sort of encapsulates what you're talking about in the book itself, which is, um, I would say, if I could really dumb it down and do correct me if I'm wrong, is that is sort of that the positivity and emotion is important when it comes to convincing people. Uh, to take action on climate change. Is that roughly correct? Yeah. I mean, look, emotion is very important. Um, I mean, it's really a book about our emotional responses to climate change. So, and everything from kind of guilt to anger to fear to love. Um, and and I make the point that, you know, the kind of emotional response we do have to climate change or the, or the emotional response we try and push away is a very natural thing because it is a really overwhelming and it's a very overwhelming thing to absorb. Um, so, so it really is a book about that draws on psychology, that draws on even things like, um, and draws on political science, but particularly psychology to get us to understand why people respond the way they do to climate change, particularly because it's become such a politicised issue in the last 20 years, almost 30 years. So it is about that. It is about the importance of positivity and hope, but it, it isn't pretending that just being you know, just, you know, smiling while you use your recycled coffee cup and, you know, <laughs> being part of Earth Hour is really going to cut it either. I, I try and be really honest about the nature of the negative feelings that, that climate change can bring up in people, the challenging feelings, those feelings that, that how they've been brought up to me, for me, um, engaging with the issue. So it's, it's really like a, like a toolkit for people who are um, trying to, come to grips with how they feel about climate change, but also more importantly, how the people around them respond. So to better understand that and to really facilitate some kind of empathy and understanding. So the structure of the book um, is one emotion per chapter. You go from guilt, fear, anger, denial, despair, hope, loss, and love. Is that all of them? Pretty much. I mean, before I go on to the emotional stuff, I talk a little bit about... um, I talk a bit about why, how, how the climate change discussion and our understanding of uh, has been shaped by our understanding of science and how we talk about science. And I, spe- I suppose for a lot of people who really believe in climate change, um, I believe it's happening and want action. They don't kind of understand why 
why everybody else isn't as convinced by the scientific data as they are. And they think that all we need to do is present more facts to people and they will accept climate change. And I, I kind of talk about why that doesn't work quite, <laughs> quite mm. as neatly for people. And then I talk a little bit about the significance of emotion and politics and worldview and how that shaped the way we respond to climate change. And some of that is inevitable and some of that has very much been shaped by the by kind of forces that have, have, have very effectively politicised the climate change issue and kind of um, made it a kind of left-right issue and, and, and the consequences of that. So I kind of set up, before I even talk about the emotions, I set up this whole reason, facts versus emotion and kind of talk a little bit about that and get people to kind of understand why that's mm. the case. Yeah. Yeah, I found that I found that very persuasive. As someone who I think on the spectrum of uh, climate change, I 100% believe that it's true. I have never had any significant doubts about it. But at the same time, I find it really difficult sometimes to engage with it without feeling some of those emotions, you know, and it, it getting to a point where I can't engage further. So I found that the book laid out a sort of um, blueprint for how you get yourself from concerned or engaged to um, to active, I guess. Is that is that what you were hoping to achieve? Something oh like gosh, that? I was absolutely hoping to achieve that. I feel, very, <laughs> I feel really happy. I mean, I was hoping that people would feel that for themselves, but I also was hoping that people would understand a little bit more the cognitive barriers and the barriers for other people, you know, so, so part of this is is trying to also get people to understand why other people don't respond the way they do and a bit of empathy and understanding in terms of that because we're not really going to sufficiently move forward if we're all screaming at each other <laughs> from our own corners on climate change. We do need to find a way to slow this conversation down and try and find different ways to engage people. And so I, I very much, and I use the metaphor throughout the book of the kind of Christmas dinner table, you know, when we all get together and, you know, there's the kind of drunk uncle. I mean, for a while we were thinking of calling the book how to talk about climate change with your drunk uncle, you know, because everybody, <laughs> everybody, you know, for a lot of lot of people like me who are really concerned about climate change, we always have somebody in our lives, you know, a, a relative or, a, you know, whatever, a neighbour who's like really, you know, really feels very differently than we do on cl about climate change and, and, you know, family gatherings can be made quite tense by everybody getting, <laughs> everybody getting a bit drunk and a bit angry. Yeah, and, sure. and so I kind of feel that that's what the public debate has become. And, and of course, when you have people, you know, who are at the two ends of the spectrum, I suppose, on climate change and their commitment and their concern and their confidence about talking about it, it does shut everybody up, like, in the centre. So everybody, you know, is just everybody else is just like, oh, we just want it all to go away because it's too emotional and it looks like it requires a lot of expert knowledge about science and it looks like it's just divisive so we're not even going to raise it so um so absolutely wonderful that you found that it was something that was personally helpful um yeah and that's a really interesting way of thinking about it too is like a way of talking about it more because it feels to me that one of the issues facing everybody when it comes not just to climate change but i guess we're probably in the midst of it with COVID 19 now too um 
and with other big, you know, existential threat issues um, is that we don't talk to people outside of our bubble very often. And so we don't talk with people who disagree with us very often at all. And that therefore you never test your ideas against anyone who disagrees with you. And if you do, it's usually an awful experience. So um, having a manual to sort of um, navigate those conversations without making everyone really angry or upset is probably helpful too. I think that's right. And, you know, if we look around us, how many really great models of disagreeing civilly do we see? We don't necessarily see it in politics. We don't often see it, um, you know, in parts of the media. Um, we probably the only time that I can see it ever really done well is occasionally it can be done well in schools, you know, with school children being encouraged to be respectful while they disagree with other people, but often adults forget that. Mm. So we, we, we are in a, I don't, I don't necessarily think we're in a, we're in a society where certain kinds of things can amplify conflict and I talk a bit about in the book about some research that had been done, for example, on whether social media forums like Twitter improve people's understanding and acceptance of climate change or not. But, of course, things like that tend to amplify and reward people who are shouty, right? It doesn't always – Twitter and, and a lot of these social media forums aren't necessarily um, – <laughs> don't necessarily reward people who listen well and mm. who – find a way, you know, slowly find a way to find some common ground. That doesn't really work with the way that, the, you know, the, our politics and our media work at the moment. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm looking for ways for people to find ways to engage on this issue that where they have understanding, empathy. And this is not to say that there can be a consensus because we can't say, oh, look, everybody's got their opinion and they're all valid. It's actually not true. It's actually not true. Den deniers' opinions yeah. of climate change are not valid. Their opinions are understandable, and I think you can get people who are doubtful and sceptical and disengaged on climate change. You can find a way to get them on board in a different way than you might engage people who are really concerned. But, it, it, you know, I think trying to find a way to get people to listen a bit more to each other and work out, well, what is really the basis of their anxiety, concern, resistance, and work with that is a good way of breaking through the kind of polarisation and politicisation that we've had around climate change, which has been very destructive. Yeah. Do you, do you think that this rise of sort of tribalism and um, identity politics in the sense of people taking something like climate change denial as part of their political identity when, you know, 30, 40 years ago, no one would have done that. Do yeah. you think that is because the problems have gotten bigger or is there something else in the psycho in human psychology that's causing that? Is it just a trend? What, what do you think? Yeah, look, it's very interesting. I mean, issues, any issue is, is one that gets framed, you know, by the times, by the, people of influence by the people around it so so one of the things of course is that what happened with climate change is that it was something that the environment movement championed very early on and so the environment movement is genuine generally associated with the left of politics really key spokespeople for climate change who've emerged people like former vice president al gore and you know other kinds of you know Hollywood stars like Leonardo DiCaprio, we tend to associate them with the progressive side of politics. And 
And so one of the things is that climate change over time has been kind of marked and framed as something as part of a progressive agenda. And so it means that even though acting on climate change is something that's going to really benefit everybody, including people who might consider themselves to be conservative, it's seen as just part of that kind of established lexicon of, of views like in America, you know, how you feel about um, abortion and reproductive rights or how you feel about you know, civil rights and, you know, so it becomes one of those things that kind of marks you out as either being progressive or conservative. Mm. And so that's why it's actually really critical that we have more conservative and and kind of unorthodox voices on climate change because while some people have a lot to lose from action on climate change, so fossil fuel companies and people made rich by fossil fuel companies, pretty much most, all the rest of us have a lot to lose. You know, so, some people more than others, right? So people in, in low-lying Pacific Island countries and, you know, and yeah. um, and and like that. And, and, and even Australia would be the most affluent country that's most likely to be affected by climate change. So while, while, not, while, while we're not all equally um, exposed, very, very, very few people are going to benefit from not act, not acting on climate change. So a lot of conservatives and people who describe themselves as conservatives around the world are, should have an interest but don't because of this kind of intense politicisation around it. Mm. And I think that there's lots of reasons why that's the case. But I think there's there's ways in which we can start to break that down and the sooner we do that, the better. Do you think some of that denialism... I was thinking about this as I was reading the book. You talk at one point about the ozone layer problem and how essentially, you know, much of that depletion of the ozone layer has been, you know, turned back, which a lot of people sort of forget is something that we actually already acted upon to fix. And Y2K is another one where I remember reading about this. I'm not sure if you cover it in the book uh, later than where I'm up to, but um, that lots and lots of people worked together really hard to make that not a problem. Yes. And and in, but the narrative about both of those things, and I'm sure there are others. Maybe you know, COVID nineteen will probably be that too in in another eighteen months. But you sort of have this sense that if you do all really work hard at something, and then afterwards everyone says, "Well, it was it was just a flash in the pan," and everyone got a bit too upset about it, and that seems like it's setting back the agenda for climate change. Yeah, look, it's interesting. The the ozone layer example is one that's used regularly as a way in which in which kind of um, countries and corporations got together to kind of solve a problem. And it's absolutely true, and it should be an example of of the our ability to do that. I think what happened with that, and I'm in no way an expert in that kind of moment in time, is that is that there was that the, there was action before politicisation. So in a sense, before it became a kind of, you know, a kind of a totemic political issue, the people who had the power to change it came together. But I suppose the other thing that's really critical here is that the, that the change that was needed to happen to deal with that was not quite as disruptive to the energy needs and economies of advanced countries so it wasn't quite as uh, dealing with the ozone layer depletion wasn't quite as threatening <laughs> to mm. capital to in, you know and and their ability to to let's say influence political decision makers as let's say fossil fuels are so it was a and 
it was it was significant, but it was easier, and it, yeah. and it was and there was swifter action, right? And so there's a really really good book that I re- reference a lot in my book by a guy called Nicholas Rich called um, uh, Losing Earth: The Decade We Could Have Stopped Climate Change. So he talks a bit about you know the kind of movements that look like we could all, almost everybody who needed to get together on this got together and it got kind of derailed by a few kind of key fossil fuel companies and a few you know extreme conservatives and once that gets derailed it's so hard to kind of you know and we've seen it in Australia right once 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 let's say for example though there was a flash that with Malcolm Turnbull when he was first opposition leader and Kevin Rudd there was an op there was like a flash of opportunity that there could have been a consensus on moving on a on a ATS but mm. with the change of leadership and the movement towards um Tony Abbott, who's like, no, I can use this, I can wedge this, I can find a way to politicise this issue and derail any possibility of consensus, then it's so hard to get that, you know, it's really, really hard then to get that back on the rails once you've got it off the rails. So I think that that all of those factors are, are at work there. That's really interesting because I, I, one of the questions I have, um, and it's not just for you, but I think there are lots of... Um, climate change books that are coming out in the next few months i think in reaction to the bushfires and that some of them have been a bit delayed uh, because of COVID 19 um, because there's a sense that people can only care about you know so many things at once and i'm not sure if i buy that but what you're saying almost gives me a bit of hope in that perhaps having so much other stuff to worry about might push climate change off the agenda of being and make it a bit more boring (laughs) (laughs) because boring problems are more likely to get solved (laughs) funny isn't it i mean i've been spending a lot of time i mean i wrote the book in a you know i've been researching it and interviewing all the people for the book for about a year but as is the case with somebody with you know, a full-time job and three kids, I basically have to write my books mostly over my summer break. So I wrote this book over the summer break with the air con had broken down and we stupidly thought that we shouldn't get it fixed, but, you know, that was dumb because it was really hot. And I kind of wrote the book and then was on social media just watching the country burn at the same time. And it really, really stretched my... So it's really that as I'm writing the book as the country is burning and... And it really did stretch my brain in terms of, you know, how I was going, what I, what I thought and my own res- emotional response. And then, you know, submitted the book, the fires went out and thought, oh, well, I'm just going to have some time to, to regroup before I have to talk about it. And then COVID-19 happened. And I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of months thinking about the, the overlapping nature of these crises and what we can learn from each other and, you know, people are making some really strong links between them or people are saying they're very different. So I'm still working through that for myself. I mean, I think, I think, and, I, and I'm, I'm very careful about making too easy connections or kind of glib, um, you know, seductive uh, conclusions about all this. But what I do think is that what we have seen is for a whole range of reasons Australia finding a way through the COVID-19 um, situation in a way that that other countries would envy and and mobilising the community and the goodwill in the community and the action of governments and all the rest of it. And, and so that part of that 
is a little bit of a lesson in how we manage any kind of crisis ongoing. Um, the hard thing about climate change is that um, it's a much, you know, it's a much longer drawn out. It's still quite quick, but it's a much longer drawn out, less in your face kind of crisis. So how do we retain the kind of commitment and vigilance to deal with something when we don't see the everyday prompts of, of you know, masks and being told to do X, Y and Z and being told to stay in our home and having briefings from politicians every day or how do we keep something at the front and centre when we're not seeing it talked about in the media every day? I mean, that's the much, much harder challenge and that's why, um, you know, fundamentally, even though we're all in the middle of COVID and we know that it's going to affect us, you know, it's affecting us now and in the near future, that's why climate change is so much harder a crisis for us mm. to come to terms with because how of how we are wired psycholo psychologically. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. And I think that's where the bushfires made, at least it helped me believe that there might be a point at which people would agree. <laughs> because it felt so present in everybody's lives even if you know I live pretty close to the middle of Sydney and my house was never under direct danger but I still had days when the smoke was so thick I couldn't breathe outside properly and I feel like that was a you know sort of universal experience um obviously unevenly distributed but um for most Australians over that period but um I, yeah, I just can't wrap my head around whether it's a distraction or a, or an opportunity, but maybe it's both. <laughs> well, it could be both, depending on where you come from it. And so that's part of it is that, is that I think the thing that's really difficult um, for people who are really committed to the climate change cause, and I would, um, I would include myself in that, is that in order to get people to on board with the solutions to deal with climate change, we don't necessarily have to force them along the same pathway or the same journey as we've gone around climate. So, um, and that's why understanding diff people's different values, their mindset, where they're coming from is really kind of critical. So for some people, the fires was a moment where general concern about climate change became, oh, my gosh, this thing is actually happening and kind of pushing people more towards an activist or really highly engaged route. And we've seen that in different parts of the community and to some extent we've also seen that in fire-affected communities as well. And I think we'll be seeing in the next couple of months really strong and terrific advocates at the local level for climate action. Um, I think we've even seen... Um, people in emergency services who might not have necessarily been likely to become, you know, hardcore greenies see that kind of change over time and become much more activist in, in and much more capable of being outspoken. But for other people, they really resist those connections and forcing them to make those connections can actually do a lot of damage. So, so, so if it isn't, if that moment isn't galvanising for people, you've got to find another moment, you know, you've got to find something else that gets them excited. What else, what else galvanises them? So the same thing isn't going to work for everyone, you know. Mm. And, um, you know, for me, and I talk at the beginning of the book, the, the emotional moment that I went from being kind of generally concerned to climate change to almost having a complete um kind of swerve towards climate activism in my work and my life and it was a very kind of you know 
casual moment on the couch one morning. So it is, it's different things for different people and that's okay and that's good. Um, it's difficult to work out when, when that happens to people. You're just kind of pushing, pushing, gently find a way to push them into certain directions and to get them to make certain links in the advocacy that you make. So mm. it's not a very, it's a very, very messy process, but it is necessarily messy because people are messy, which is yeah. why we, why they're so wonderful and infuriating. <laughs> <laughs> in that sense, I mean, I, I think you, you cover like, denial quite interestingly in the book about um you know basically saying it's the most obviously negative part of the process but to some extent we are all in denial as a way of getting through it uh, and being able to live our lives and not just be totally overtaken by despair um those of us who believe it i guess um it seems to me like there are way more people who are just who sort of believe it but don't do anything do you think that those people who are just sort of uh, passive or in, indifferent rather uh, are more of a problem than the people who are just outright denying? Well, it's a really good point. People that are passive, people who are disengaged, um, uh, you know, I think the people who are disengaged are overwhelmed and often overwhelmed and they often try to get overwhelmed people to engage some, with something different is really hard. And they're often wired in different ways, right? So they they may be people who dislike politics, right, or don't feel confident enough to be able to talk about things and feel like they have to really understand science to talk about climate change. And often, and in some ways, engaging the disengaged is the hardest thing. And, you know, I've found in work that I've done um, that, um, that the you, you can you ha often have to find different ways to get at people who are disengaged. So they're not necessarily going to watch the 7.30 report or read the newspaper. In fact, during elections, they may assiduously avoid that. So this is why different ways to get into them is, is really significant. And it may be that all you can do is sell them on the benefit on the benefits of cheaper energy, right, or sell or... Mm you know, work out what matters to them and it might be policies completely not related to climate change. It might be policies related to something else and then you find a way to weave climate change issues in it. Um, so the thing about people who are hardcore deniers, and this is why, you know, I talk a lot about the benefits of whether or not you should engage people who are deniers. I spend a lot of time trying to move them. I, I definitely think we need to find ways to challenge them in when they're in the public sphere and particularly our parliaments because when they're there it seems people tend to think that they stand for a larger bigger group of people when in fact they don't but actually I would never ever recommend you spend a lot of time arguing with a denier in your own life <laughs> because yeah. it's just going to wear you down um, and you're just going to think about it. we've all got limited energy and time I think it's much better to find ways to listen and talk to people who are a bit on the fence. You kind of think, oh, yes, maybe, but what about this? I mean, it's, it, you think about your return on investment. And the thing about deniers, and this is there's quite a lot of research I talk about in the book, is deniers are very, very good at just cherry-picking what they want to. Um, and we re we're talking about really hardcore deniers, mm. professional deniers and people who love arguing about climate change. 
they're just very good at, at, at cherry picking the information they want to hear and listen to. So um, as I say in the book, there'd been a big study done on 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 discourse of deniers around um, a particular period of time through a lot of their websites and found that they were able to simultaneously argue that um, that things were getting cooler, that warming wasn't happening, that warming was happening but actually it was okay. <laughs> so they were prepared to kind of jump around like that, finding, cherry-picking different studies that they they wanted to listen to. So, I mean, how can you – I kind of say that arguing with a denier is like putting an octopus in a string bag. Like it's really, really hard to do and what's the point really? Like so that's kind of what I think at, it's like. At the, end, at the end of it all you have is an octopus in a string bag. <laughs> That's great. That's fantastic, yeah. uh, and very interesting. I uh, I would love to continue talking to you about this, but uh, usually we we do try and wrap up at some point. And I I want to give people the chance to read the book because I think um, oh, yeah, I think it, there's there's so much in this, and it's so detailed and fascinating. And every everything you talk about is sort of backed up with point um, studies and interesting anecdotes and interviews. And um, I just um, wanted to thank you for writing it. And if, is there anything I, to, to give you an opportunity to end on a positive note? Is there anything that you, that you want to give listeners a chance to sort of take away with them? Do you know, I think I am I'm really hopeful in a kind of a, I suppose, what would I say, a really in a, in a constructive way about, about the ability for communities, not just individuals, but communities to find creative ways to sustain it, sustain themselves and to keep the things that matter to them going. So I feel when I actually look at what certain communities are trying to do on climate change, I'm hopeful. When I look at politics in the media, I get stressed. When I look at the studies, I get stressed. But one of the reasons why I did... Um, one of the reasons why it's not just a book about with a whole lot of psychological studies, it's also interviews with activists, is I really wanted to give people some uh, some insight into the way that people who've been really engaged with climate change over long periods of time in quite difficult environments, like places like Fiji and, um, and Zimbabwe, how they sustain their hope and action. And I think in that, people will find some models for their own lives and also hopefully a little bit of, of inspiration. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it's, a, it's a great read and I highly recommend that our listeners check it out. It's called How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference. Yeah. Uh, and you can buy it for Booktopia or uh, from your local indie bookshop. Yeah. Thanks, Rebecca, so much for joining us. No worries. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au